This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Hyde. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrain Press. Here for the Can You Believe It, Ken? I can't believe it, Robin. Here for the 50th, count it, 50th edition of the Gathering of the Tabletop Tribes, Gen Con! Depending on what you ask us, stuff we might talk about in this episode include... Tabletop and adventure gaming. Time travel. Tradecraft. Cinema. Occultism. And of course, food. It has come to pass. The new third edition of Unknown Armies is in stores now. Unknown Armies is a modern-day occult role-playing game about broken people who conspire to fix the world. The new edition has a completely new character creation system. Now, more than ever, each character's attributes revolve around their wounded and worsening psychological state. The third edition also has a whole new way for GMs to focus play on the group's communal goal to change the world. And the myriad ways things are likely to go horribly, horribly wrong. Unknown Army's third edition has three core books, Play for Players, Run for GMs, and Reveal the Book of the Weird for Everyone. Buy them individually, or in a deluxe set whose slipcase has a magnetic clasp and unfolds to become a GM screen. Read more at atlas-games.com slash unknown armies. Or leave immediately for your local game store. Because Unknown Armies is there. Right now! Uh, last night at the They Might Be Giants concert, Kat was asking us, if you, if you had an encore song for your podcast, if you had the thing that everybody was waiting for at the end, what would it be? And the answer, of course, is in the nerd trope cards that we do at our live show. But, of course, if we actually got up and left the room, just the people from the next Battletech seminar would come in and sit down. <laughs> Which is why we do it at the beginning of the podcast. These, of course, are the legendary index cards created by our uh, uh, friend at Fan Calipate. Uh, we have a nerd card. We have a trope card. We have a set of decks. They don't really shuffle because these are index cards. They were not printed by Cardamundi in Belgium. Uh, but they contain randomness nonetheless. And this time, as you can see, podcast viewers... I actually not only brought them to the city where the event is being held, but to the venue this time. So we actually really have the nerd trope cards. And the first card, the nerd card that Ken is going to riff upon is Crimean War. The Crimean War. Crimean War. Crimean War. And the trope card is... Mecca. Mecca. Well, that seems kind of obvious. (laughs) (laughs) The trope card is... Ken is rejecting the premise a lot lately. Uh, let's see, what do we got? Oh, well, I mean, I can do Crimean, but these guys can do Crimean. We're not talking to amateurs here, okay. Robin. We're just, okay, we're going to keep the mecha, but we're going to add cyborgs. Cyborgs. Okay, um, uh, because otherwise we're just going to keep going down to like mechanical arms and just <laughs> the same thing over and over yeah. and over again. All right, the Crimean War, as we all know, begins in 1853 with the attempt of the Russians to uh, force a path through Constantinople, through the Dardanelles, uh, declaring themselves protectors of Orthodox Christians in the East. The British don't really care about Orthodox Christians in the East, but they do care very much about the Dardanelles and about the Russians having a fleet in the Mediterranean. So, the Russians say, 
uh, the British say that's not going to happen and decide to invade Russia. And being Britain, they don't pour across the border like a bunch of amateurs. They pick a spot, a remote, inaccessible spot with no roads to the interior and invade it. And that spot is a spot called Crimea. Right. But the person who decided that was was a high-ranking aristocrat. Exactly. Therefore, the, Therefore, it was a good idea. It was a good idea. Perforce. And in fairness, if you're looking to keep a war away from anything anyone values, having it in Crimea <laughs> in 1854, not a terrible idea. So, after discovering they had no logistical train, they had no navy, they had no hospital corps, and they had no uh, inter-allied general staff, the Allies mounted an amphibious landing in Crimea, and immediately started dying of typhoid. Right. Is there, is there a poem about things going badly, perhaps? Uh, not that I can recall, Robin, okay, yeah. but perhaps. It is at this juncture, when things are looking their bleakest, when the titled aristocrat who came up with the idea for invading the Crimea was looking as though he was going to lose his job over it, or at least his access to the queen on a regular basis. It was decided to go ahead with a perhaps unorthodox methodology that had been developed by a number of um, uh, uh, social climbing middle class entrepreneurs who were building exciting mechanical devices with steam. And if we all recall, uh, this is the era of the Industrial Revolution. Factories are springing up. Flywheels are being flown. It is also the period, incidentally, when uh, Faraday has discovered the um, uh, nature of electricity, invented the dynamo, thus enabling you to power things uh, independently of a immediate uh, mill wheel. It is also the period at which the natural connection between electricity and human nervous activity has been demonstrated by Galvani, among other people, and is continuing to be explored even unto this day. Right, and the, the works of, uh, of Professor Frankenstein Professor have been Frankenstein is, of course, very key uh, to this question uh, because, as we all know from having read the novel, he performed his last experiments in Scotland, which is technically part of the British Empire. So... Uh, Lord Bute uh, had seized Frankenstein's records as being uh, deleterious to the public wheel, what with the creation of unholy monstrosities. Uh, Lord Palmerston says, well, if the public wheel is all the way over in Crimea, <laughs> why not? And begins the construction of cyborg warriors, thus solving the problems of middle-class climbers who are attempting to get into all the good restaurants in London, and too many embarrassing nearly dead people in the Crimea. And so by offering uh, sumptuous government contracts, access to Frankenstein's pioneering research, and all the copper wire you can eat, the um, uh, rising middle class of Britain is shipped to the Crimea to turn the casualties of uh, the idea to invade the Crimea into cyborgs. Right. So the charge of the Light Brigade was they just needed more materials. Exactly. <laughs> well, the charge was um, uh, D.C., as we all know. Right, right. yes. <laughs> Thank so, you for coming, everyone. Yes, yes. Welcome. So the, uh, the British Army begins to uh, replenish its casualties from its ample stores of electromotor servo parts and uh, dead bodies, uh, gifted with unnatural electrical life, uh, thanks to the works of Faraday and Frankenstein, and the cyborgs begin to turn the tide. It is at this point that the Russian government panicking, as it often does in the face of foreign invasion, and turning, as it often does in the face of foreign invasion, to odd inspirations that may strike it out of nowhere, goes to the works of the uh, pioneering creators of the Russian uh, railway system and the Russian uh, mining industry, which, of course, have to build enormous rails to carry enormous cargoes 
of minerals out of the frozen Siberian wasteland and enormous drills to drill through the permafrost in order to get to the minerals. This mineral wealth being literally the only thing that's keeping the Russian Empire alive at this point. And so uh, the designers of these enormous drills and enormous um, uh, 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 rail systems are asked, can you design anything other, ideally enormous, <laughs> that would give us a, 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 an angle Could against... this also be unwieldy? <laughs> well, I don't know I suppose <laughs> That implies that it moves at all oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Sessile would be better But we will settle for unwieldy Is there room on that for minaret? <laughs> of course it's Russian, cyborg yeah. It's Russian mecca And so uh, once the minor matter of how many kulaks can, uh, how many uh, serfs can we use, uh, is answered with all of them. <laughs> the process of assembling enormous uh, counterweighted uh, Gundams, uh, mecha, uh, using uh, mostly logs as the uh, mechanism, which has the advantages of lightness and being remarkably bulletproof. <laughs> Uh, not so much cannon-proof, but no mecha is cannon-proof because of a little something I like to call the laws of momentum. <laughs> <laughs> At any rate, the um, uh, using logs clamped together uh, with, with metal fa- uh, fittings and motivated by an ingenious system of pulleys and a large boiler, these uh, steam men of the steppes, if you wish to call them such, begin tramping down out of the Ukraine towards the battle site in the Crimea. And though the Great War recapitulating the struggle between cyborgs and mecha that have echoed down through the histories ever since, begins there. There is a a Ukrainian uh, engineer named Kibalchik, who at that time is uh, a young uh, student, uh, just about to be sent to Siberia for uh, reading an illegal book. He is, instead of being sent to Siberia for reading an illegal book, he is sent to the Crimea to build a flying, unwieldy wooden mecha, and with his revolutionary uh, uh, propulsion system, uh, which I'm sure would have worked <laughs> in history, uh, is able to create not just Mecha, but uh, Gundams, because they can properly fly around. Um, although, again, you're talking about uh, muzzle-loading cannons, so right. their rate of fire is not what you might expect. In Russia, dams gun you! Yes. And the best part is, when it fails, it usually fails over a British formation anyway, so really the problem is solved. Uh, in terms of uh, gaming, obviously, we would not be playing back in the Crimean War, because that would involve a lot of tedious research. Yeah. <laughs> when you hire somebody to do research, it takes them a long time to finish the game. It does, because they're doing a good job, Robin. <laughs> <laughs> Instead, what we are playing is the uh, scholars and uh, people who now, in the wake of Putin's invasion of the Crimea have been moving in from the uh, GRU and other uh, arcane aspects of the Russian state to discover that, unbeknownst to them, there had been a war with giant log soldiers and and cyborgs here, and it ended in some sort of horrific catastrophe that no one is sure about, but the British never went back to cyborgs, and obviously we didn't build giant flying log guys because there'd be a record. (laughs) And what's, what's going on? What happened in the Crimea that was so god-awful and disastrous that this, I don't say promising, (laughs) but this (laughs) terrifying technology of uh, giant steam men versus uh, animated corpses did not move forward into World War I. It's the uncovering of this archaeological impossibility that is the driver of your story. And the actual 
uh, answer is that as the level of combat continued to build up in the Crimea, uh, they activated ancient Scythian magics. <laughs> and you may be familiar with ancient Scythian magics from such works as Highlander. Um, <laughs> But instead of immortal uh, uh, bald sociopaths, instead they awoken. They awakened the Amazons, who are surely in there somewhere, <laughs> lived in that area, and uh, as we have seen countless times in the comics and in uh, other entertainment, the Amazons no doubt cast some sort of uh, magic lasso over the whole situation and pulled it into a singularity of history to be left uh, guarded by the same obscuring veil that guards uh, Themyscira and other Amazon outposts. So you have the history of this outburst of technology, the question of how much more often has it happened, and the question of are the Amazons still paying attention because we've suddenly just dug up something they buried on purpose. And so now you have a, uh, a multi-level uh, uh, story, which can be informed, of course, by the fact that some of the cyborgs may still be wandering around because guess what? They were dead already. What's going to happen to them? They're going to die more? I don't think so. Even when a giant log guy falls on them. Uh, well, there might still be a giant log guy yes. stuck on them, right? Because right. you mentioned they were falling on a, a formations. Mm -hmm. So we could have a thing like the, the, a metaphor for the thawing of the permafrost. Exactly. Where, or it could be an actual thawing of the permafrost. Right. Yeah. That, there you go, yeah. Yes. So, that all the, all the uh, uh, log mecha were, were stored up in Siberia by the czars yep. to be frozen into a pit. Right. And below them are the cyborgs. Right. That all melts. Someone starts pulling up the mecha, mm -hmm. and maybe they're not so, you know, uh, in great shape, but the cyborgs are just, they've been sitting there waiting to go, and they're mad having been stuck under the permafrost for so long. So, yeah, I, I think we've got uh, another reason to worry about uh, global climate change. And Putin. And Putin. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, uh, we could go on with uh, why exactly undead cyborgs are interfering with uh, Western elections. Uh, but I think that would be another topic, and therefore not the nerd trope, ladies and gentlemen. Robin, what you working on these days? Thanks to the Kickstarter for the Yellow King role-playing game, I now have 40-plus stretch goals worth of additional material to create and or oversee. Yellow King, Yellow King, is that the game of weird horror in which players portray interconnected sets of characters in four different weird realities, all investigating the reality-warping activities of its titular monarch? None other, Ken. Would that game also include the innovative new take on the beloved gumshoe system, which adds such cool new features as faster player-facing combat and the vivid status effects of shock and injury cards? Yep, that's the one. And is that hideous wailing I hear, the collective lamentation of gamers who, for whatever reason, were unable to back the Kickstarter? Yeah, sure sounds like it. Have you and our friends at Pilgrim Press considered leaving it open for pre-order for those who want to get in on the initial shipment and get a deal almost as special as that captured by original backers? Why, thank you for asking that question. The question I scripted for you, Ken. Does that mean listeners, in fact, can pre-order the Yellow King role-playing game by following a link in the show notes? It sure does, and you know what else it means? What? You may now discard a shock card. A shock card? I didn't know I had a shock card. A shock card? Oh. The Yellow King role-playing game pre-order. Follow the link in the show notes and discard a shock card. So, as is our wont uh, in our live episodes, uh, we ask you, the audience, to uh, pose us questions, 
and uh, we will attempt to answer, and uh, more importantly, we will attempt to rephrase the question for the purposes of the audience at home. So you, the uh, adept live listeners, will uh, catch us when we fail to rephrase the question, and you will shout, rephrase the question. So uh, let's practice that. Okay, so uh, let's see. Uh, you answer a, a test question, not a good one, because we don't want to spoil one. So ask a, a, t a test question here. Why starfish? Uh, so the problem with starfish is... Okay, that's awesome, guys. Thanks a lot. Okay, so someone have a, a good question now to kick us off. Ken, what's your beef with the Gnostics? Uh, my beef with the Gnostics is uh, theological in that they are wrong. <laughs> it is aesthetic in that they believe that the created world is bad, whereas the created world, I'm here to tell you, contains bacon and Jessica Alba and sunrises and all manner of things that are great. And they are frickin' overused because everybody read the Gnostic Gospels in college and said, I should write a movie about this, or I should write a comic book about this, that's or I should write a role-playing of it. You shouldn't do any of those things. That's not fair. Half the people didn't read it. Their stoned roommate who never uh, replaced the milk in the refrigerator talked about it constantly when they were stoned, and exactly. that's how they absorbed it. Or worse yet, they read someone who stoned roommate read it and wrote a comic book, yeah. etc., ad nauseum thereupon. Uh, you must be uh, this tall and, and literate in Koine Greek to use the Gnostics. Um, and I'm actually willing to extend how tall you should be depending on how tall some people are. <laughs> Take that, Gnostics. Take that. Uh, next question. Uh, Ken, what was Time Incorporated doing at the Great Siege of Malta? So the question is, Ken, what was Time Incorporated doing at the Great Siege of Malta? Um, ducking. There was a lot of ducking. <laughs> uh, the Great Siege of Malta, 1565, Suleiman the Magnificent uh, unleashes his armada against the island of Malta, the lovely little island of Malta, fabled in song and story and gospel, and gospel tale. Home of Maltese. Home of the Malteser, home of the Maltese even, home of creepy barrow mounds, home of the Knights of Malta, who set our story who had previously been the Knights of Rhodes before they were kicked off Rhodes in 1524. Previously that, the Knights uh, Hospitaller, until they suddenly didn't have the hospital in Palestine. Basically, the Knights of being thrown out of stuff. <laughs> At this point, they're the Knights, however, of Malta, and beginning to think, maybe we just should stick to Knights of St. John going forward. Um, because outside of Malta is an armada of Turkish uh, corsairs and galleons and whatnot, or galleasses, bear bearing roughly, and it's hard to estimate, but roughly 100,000 men. And to defend Malta, they had, I think, 70 knights initially. It's, it's not a lot of knights. If you would want more knights than that, <laughs> if you had selected that. So um, uh, it is crucially important for the timeline that Malta not fall, because if Malta falls, suddenly you have that whole Turkish armada flooding into, I don't know, Rome and other places that you might want to keep. Uh, or at least keep the uh, Western tradition of not being ruled by the Turks alive in, as well as, I don't know, pictorial art. A lot of people are fond of the pictorial art of that era. Primarily what, the, uh, what Time Incorporated is doing is uh, maintaining a rotating replacement depot for Knights of Malta. <laughs> uh, making sure that all of the um, uh, previous Knights of Malta who had said, I'm going to go off and martyr myself uselessly in the Transjordan are 
whisked to the walls of Malta to martyr themselves helpfully in the defense right. of Malta. Right, so this uses not Ken's time machine, actually, but the little-known Ken's time bus. Yes. Well, there's a, there's a module you can put on. It's like yes. the cover on your camper van. Yeah. yeah. And, and so the, the fundamental job of uh, time travel is to uh, make things always have happened that way, uh, aside from killing Hitler. That's job two. <laughs> and that, that contrasts with job one rather stringently. Yeah, right. job three is figuring that out. Yeah. Um, well, we, we've established that there's a too many time travelers. There's, yes. a, there's an, an anomaly. There's, yes. there's no moral case for that. Also, uh, Hitler has, um, in Lamarckian fashion, evolved to be super able to take out time travelers. Yes. <laughs> That's his skill now. <laughs> Puts all his points into it. But he spends, how about a, how he to spends so strategy? Many... No, no, surviving time travel assassination right. is far more important. But he spends so much time on that that Berlin falls, so it does exactly. all work out. It people. works out well in the end. <laughs> Where were we? Ah, yes, not Hitler. Um, and, and so the uh, the preservation of Malta against that first wave is indeed down to those 70 guys and about 300 mul- local Maltese primarily, although there's other uh, sort of um, uh, soldiers of fortune who are either in Malta and couldn't get away fast enough, or, as was the custom at the time, said, fighting 100,000 Turks, that's my kind of job. <laughs> and I assume that they got you know paid in advance. But then they would sail up and, and do that. And then the next sort of uh, year, the next season, uh, the kings of Spain and Naples send reinforcements, so it's not quite so dire. And uh, the, the Turks begin to realize they themselves are attempting to besiege an island without any water, and it's very hard to supply their, their, their forces uh, from the sea, which... Uh, flashback is made out of salt water, not regular water. And the Turkish logistical machine, never the most robust, begins to feel the strain. So it is that crucial first uh, stage of the siege that's important, and uh, no one really misses a few extra dead crusaders littered here and about, as uh, you can tell by the fact that they're still sort of stumbling over them and not caring. Uh, So that's basically uh, my job, that and, uh, as I previously alluded, ducking. Next question. I, I got out of that without mentioning the Holy Grail. That was good. That was good. Yeah, yeah. But, but you did mention Hitler. Yeah. And I don't know why he's on our mind lately. Yeah. There's a Willie Nelson song to that effect. Yes. Uh, in honor of Marvel's Defenders hitting Netflix, what advice would you give to a, to a GM who has to integrate, let's say, a um, totally different character into an otherwise cohesive group? Okay, so uh, the question begins with a plug for Netflix. (laughs) And then moves on to the question of how do you integrate uh, tonally different characters into a uh, campaign. So I guess this is where you have your Silver Age Captain America hanging out with uh, uh, Murdery Age Wolverine. Uh, How do you allow them both to exist in their same kind of uh, moral universe that rewards both of them for existing? And uh, I guess the, uh, that's a tricky one, so I guess you'd have to talk about uh, that in addition to, uh, you don't want the characters to traditionally, uh, you know, step on each other's sticks. Here you don't want to uh, have them stepping on each other's moral ethos. Uh, So uh, you want to create situations in which, uh, do you want to bring that out as the conflict or does it inevitably make Captain America turn into a character in the Wolverine universe? I think that you have to, if you're wanting, if, if the goal is to honor both sets of morality, both, both moral spectra, you have to create stories in which, in one set of stories, the Wolverine ethos is the winning ethos, and in other sets of stories, it is the losing ethos. 
and you have to make sure that those stories alternate at relatively regular intervals, and you have to make sure that the inevitable interplay between Wolverine and Captain America's players is fun to play and fun to watch, and that it, it advances the story in some way. And that may be a mechanical decision, or it may be a simple talk to the players and say, you know, this is high school debate, you have two minutes to argue for um, uh, what I do isn't pretty, and two minutes to argue for Kapwing, and then we'll move forward at that point. And and you never want to talk to players and work out something at the outset. That's awkward. So I would yes. create a, a mechanic <laughs> right. uh, where, in fact, there are ethos points. And uh, so presumably not everybody is on the, the polls the way that our two examples are, but there are other characters who are sort of in between. And, you know, one week I might be more attracted to, to the Wolverine way and more to the Captain America way. So everybody has a set of ethos points that they can spend. You always know how Wolverine's player is going to spend his points to make the uh, moral universe of the, this adventure more Wolverine-y. Captain America is always going to try and make it sparkling and nice and uh, and good guyish. But the characters in the middle of that can well, okay. This week I want to spend. Uh, I'm going to lend this point to Wolverine's player, and it's like, oh no, I'm going to spend to Captain America's player. And as long as there's an uneven number of points, the way that things go in the world depends on where the players are uh, pushing them to spend uh, and that can vary from time to time and that means that the uh, uh, endless debates between Captain America and Wolverine, everybody else then has a stake in them because they are being covertly or overtly lobbied to spend their points because there's nothing more annoying than the you know standard the paladin thief characters have a the half hour argument they have every time and we have to sit there it's like well now you can have your argument but uh, you're gonna have to win us over paladin and thief uh, the reality of the world is going to shift a little depending on what you convince us is more fun to do tonight therefore that solves the fun problem right it's that you're they have to uh, uh, bid for your attention in order to convince you that the the world that you want to be living in the snickty world or the shieldy world are the the more entertaining worlds and uh, there is a proto mechanic for that in the karma system from the original Jeff Grubbs Marvel superheroes game in which heroes gain or lose points depending right. on how closely they hew to their hero's karma. And, and original Jeff Grubb was my favorite Jeff Grubb. Yes, I, yeah. later Jeff Grubbs have been good. They've solved a lot of problems with old Jeff Grubb. Yeah, I wasn't looking for a gritty reboot, though. No, no, I wasn't. But you've got to admit that the, uh, that the sound design is great on the, the new Jeff Grubb. Yeah. But anyway, that, that system has sort of the, the, the seedbed of, of what we're talking about in terms of rewarding players for acting in, uh, in ethos. And you can then uh, ex extrapolate from that to create a system by which players assign their karma points to the other uh, karma point characters. Isaac Newton discover in an alternate 1666.
he discovered the way that alchemical truths that sounds be- fabulous where can i learn more in volume three of the best of phoenix now available in pdf at drive through rpg that must mean that all three volumes of the best of phoenix are available separately or in a value conscious omnibus edition when you're typing it into the search engine you're typing f-e-n-i-x and what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. And of course, uh, we are supported in, in all Ken and Robin things by our Patreon backers. Are there any backers in the house today? Stand up! Be applauded by the rest of the crowd! <laughs> Thank you for making this podcast happen. So, another question. So, this is the first time a Cardus Live question has included breaking news. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And so, uh, to to, uh, condense somewhat scandalously, the question is, how do you take someone like uh, the just-fired Steve Bannon... And, uh, That's a lot of support for Steve Bannon. I would yeah. not have expected that. Uh, I mean, hey, you guys be you, but I, yeah. that's not how I would so have So the met. question is, how do you use an avatar of Sasagua in, in, <laughs> in, your, in your game? A, uh, a, a, uh, I've been too busy doing jokes to yeah, capture, actually the, capture the, the question. Of the question. <laughs> yes, and uh, anyway... Uh, don't bring up Sathagwa. That's uh, that's rule one. Um, no, rule one is kill Hitler. I'm confused. No, no rule one is you can't kill Hitler. Uh, yes. Uh, what's your question again? <laughs> kill Mark. How do you how do you uh, create a um, uh, a manipulator of events, a a Svengali figure, right. basically, as a credible villain in a game and an interesting villain? Because credible, obviously, we believe in Svengalis. Uh, right. We see them every day. But uh, less so, uh, I guess, going forward. But the question is, how do you put them into the game to make them an interesting and and vital part of the story, right? Right. Um, And I guess the first answer is that you have to have them in the orbit of the characters. That the problem with a distant manipulator of events is that if you never get to interact with them and never see them, and a successful Svengali manipulating events from afar, you don't see their tracks, unlike... Steve Bannon. Yeah. Uh, so you you want to have a setup where there's a, a political uh, stakes to the campaign. You are say the effectuators of the king, let's say, and uh, here's the uh, the weird vizier with the uh, uh, you know who's continually uh, uh, you know got shaving cuts and getting them on his robe, and he's uh, you know he's he's Littlefinger, let us say, and uh, and the secret of 
uh, Littlefinger, if not Steve Bannon, is that there's things that you want from him, that he's, uh, he's protected uh, by the king, and your goal, basically, is to create this breaking news event. That's, that's the end, right, is you want to get Steve Bannon fired. And so you are in his world. You don't immediately have power to strike at him, but you see him manipulating events, and those manipulations affect you, and then you have to start working on, on counter-manipulations. So you can't keep him too far away from the action of your story, or I guess the other way is you sort of begin to see hints of the existence of this person as you do the classic onion peel campaign where the first time you discover that there might be a shadowy manipulator and then the, the second investigation you incidentally also learn the, uh, the, see a photo of who this might be and in the third one then you learn their name and in the fourth one then you have the meeting on neutral ground where there's a reason why you can't kill them immediately to, to go after them and then uh, the, the final one is the one with the, with the airship crashing into the mountain as you're fighting them and, uh, and then they're, they're fired by the president <laughs> and I find that that fourth scenario that fourth moment, that fourth act is super effective in play if the shadowy manipulating figure, the, the Svengali, it, the reason you're being meeting with him at all is he's offering you a job. He's seen how great you are at, you know, stabbing um, uh, owlbears or doing ritual magic or whatever it is your characters right. do. And he's like, I can use right. plucky go-getters with no discernible morality in my organization. Right. <laughs> well, he's, he's taking a shine to you because owlbears are notorious social justice warriors. Yeah, they so. are. <laughs> There's one thing that uh, we know about owlbears. Right. It is that they... Um, right. uh, Keep opal. I don't know what they do. Anyway, they're, they're nurturing. They they protect yes. their eggs. You know, yeah. no other form of bear is lays eggs. <laughs> this is just this is just uh, Richard Attenborough one hundred and one. Ken. Uh, Hashtag not all owlbears. Anyway, <laughs> um, so you uh, so you uh, the recruitment scene is a really good one because it also gives you an excuse to lay out a little more of his plan because in the recruitment he's giving you the the sunny version. Here's what we're going to accomplish together with the kingdom. And um, uh, you'll have a role in making this great new, new future happen. And you might even buy into it. You might say, gosh, I kind of do want to, 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 to make uh, Westeros great again. Maybe not precisely the way you do, but I, I like all those words. <laughs> That's cool. And so when uh, Little Bannon offers you the gig, in, in my experience in play, players will accept sometimes, and that makes the story even more interesting, because now you're Hope Hicks, you're on the inside saying, oh, well, that was odd. (laughs) When I agreed to this, I didn't realize I'd be put in a position I was completely unqualified for. (laughs) And that also can, can, can create story. And so... Even the fact of the offer makes him a more multidimensional character. Him presenting his side of it makes him a more multidimensional character. And you getting an up-close look at him gives you more information, even if your eventual decision is, no, we will fight uh, uh, you know, uh, war to the knife and knife to the death. That's our policy on uh, shadowy Svengali bears. And, um, uh, and we're not going to accept any, any um, uh, uh, half measures whatsoever. But you still have a juicier, better scene in that respect. So if it is at all plausible that you could be a target of recruitment by the Svengali, that's a much better and I think more realistic version than you have now come to my notice, ergo I will destroy you personally. Right. Which, first of all, Svengalis don't destroy anyone personally. Someone comes to their notice, they're you know swarmed by ninjas. It's right. not a thing where... Oh no, it's the anti-owlbear. Right, yes. Um, now my players have learned through long experience... To Never trust an NPC. <laughs> well, but, 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 in a more nuanced way. 
<laughs> they've learned never to work for Steve Bannon. Yeah. But they found a clever way when we ran 13th Age to seem to work for Steve Bannon, which is they said yes, and then they went back to the good guys and said, we have an undercover opportunity. Uh, and so that was a great sort of double bind where you know they were working, uh, seeming to work for the bad guy uh, who, uh, who ran the scorpion pit, but in fact we're still working for the... Uh, good guys who ran the free-range scorpions. Exactly. <laughs> The, the, the scorpions get to run and play and go to a farm. And, uh, so next question, Noel. Patrian Becker, Noel. Pa- Patrian Becker, Noel Warford. Uh, I was wondering what occult forces were behind the relatively brief appearance of the flooding of that seed bank in Scandinavia somewhere. Oh, yes. What they were trying to yeah, the, the seed bank on Spitsbergen Island. Okay, so the question is, what occult forces were behind the flooding of the aforementioned seed bank? Uh, the, and I, was it on Spitsbergen or Novio Zemlya? It's somewhere up in the in that neck of the woods. I think it's right. Spitsbergen, though. And well, for the purposes of this conversation, we'll say it's Spitsbergen because I a right. I know more about it, and b um, uh, too bad. Um, <laughs> the seed bank is was an attempt to maintain an archive of as many different uh, species, basically, of seeds as you possibly could, so that in case one went extinct for some other reason, over over grazing or whatnot, they could go and they could get the seeds out of the seed bank and take them up. There was a proto-version of this seed bank that was maintained, believe it or not, by the Soviets uh, as part of the sort of Marxist, you know, know everything about all the material world because all the material world is grist for the Marxist mill of the future. As covered on a previous episode. As covered on a previous episode. And there was, like, seed... Archive ceiling. There, exactly, there's some of these yes. were looted seeds, mm-hmm. and they um, uh, because Soviets and and, <laughs> and these seeds had been immured in uh, Leningrad during the siege of Leningrad, the great uh, cannibalism-inducing siege of Leningrad, and so some of those seeds made their way into the Spitsbergen seed bank, and then that is real, right? Those the, some of those seeds are in Spitsbergen. And they put it in Spitsbergen because they thought, well, what can go wrong with Spitsbergen? It's a frozen ice block in the middle of nowhere. Well, what can go wrong is it can melt. And so now the, the seed bank is, I, I think what I read was it was not currently in danger, but they really had not planned for, you know, waterproofing the frozen seed bank and, and had to, you know, uh, build levees or something. And so the, 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 the thing about Spitsbergen, and to a lesser extent Novia Zemlya, he said covering his ass, is that these islands were discovered in the 16th and 17th centuries by mostly by Dutch uh, navigators and to some extent by British ones who were looking for the Northeast Passage for the method of going from uh, the part of the world with money to China, which at, the, at that time they thought was not the part of the world with money. Um, they knew very little about getting to China or about what you would do when you got to China, except you could get more money. Right. <laughs> they assumed if there was money, it was elsewhere. It was elsewhere. Yes, we know we there must be but more money. No, I don't we see any money it. here. Yeah. yeah. And, and so the um, uh, the attempt to find the Northeast Passage has, uh, as does the attempt to find the Northwest Passage, a strong mystical focus. And the, the notion being that as you uh, are, are going towards this uh, towards this passage, you're sort of recapitulating the movement south of uh, the original um, uh, uh, you know, Hyperborean ancestors of humanity. The question of Hyperborea being one that begins with the ancient Greeks. Hyperborea is a magical island. It's ruled by Apollo, uh, where, coincidentally, all the plants flourish, no matter how cold it gets, because he's Apollo, and he can do that with sun magic. It's above the north wind, so the north wind starts below it. That's what Hyperborea means. And so the north wind's blowing this way, so there's no north wind up there. It's all lovely. So we have a... Apollonian seed bank prior 
which in theosophical mysticism is destroyed by one of the many, many cataclysms. The Hyperboreans uh, begin as a, um, uh, as a, as a, a sweat-born species and then give rise to the egg-born, the Lemurians. So again, in a way, they're sort of a seed bank for the future of mankind. So what is happening, uh, to answer your question, is the Kali Yuga is happening. Uh, if you try and go backwards up the chain, if you try and find the Northeast Passage, if you try and go around and return to Hyperborea, well, what happens? You try and go back to the Gates of Eden, you're smacked around by an angel with a flaming sword. If you try and go back to Hyperborea, you're melted. You're, uh, you engage in a disaster. And what is a better symbolic disaster, flooding of the world, than the flooding of literally all the world's seeds? Now, uh, another possibility is because that is a story that it turns out perhaps it had to be veiled out by the Ordo Veritatis, but it turns out that the flooding uh, in the site was greatly exaggerated and that the flooding was basically, there was a leak in the ceiling and they got a bucket. So the seeds were never in danger. So what does it mean that we thought that all of the world's uh, seed archive was in danger? Well, it means that someone was trying to create the idea that that was happening. Ergo, there were tulpas at work. Now, these are no ordinary tulpas. They are the tulpas of water. It is water elementals who are trying to immunitize into the world. And uh, guess what? Uh, there's going to be a lot more water elementals as the ice caps continue to melt. So they want to uh, increase. They've, they've got a good foothold now. And now uh, they want us all to be worried about their power uh, now that they're going to be our uh, inevitable overlords. So uh, the problem with that now is that you have to be careful. Uh, the, uh, when the water elementals take over, they're going to have a big amount of leverage over us because, of course, 97% water, whatever the percentage is, and you need water to live. So in a world where some water is real and some water is a tulpa, the magicians who can tell you which water is real are going to be very deeply powerful. And uh, uh, Robin uses the word tulpa, weirdly synonymous with elemental, but a tulpa, of course, is created by belief in a thing. So it is the belief that the seeds are flooding that has created the flood in the first place. Yes. So it is, in a way, denial of the flood that is our best war against the tulpas. Well, there's your argument, Ken. Uh, (laughs) You brought the tulpas into it. (laughs) Next question. Uh, I see uh, the hand in the middle in the back that is presumably attached to someone. Uh, let's see. So when was the last time? Okay, so restate the question. Restate the question. So the question is, when did I last use uh, misuse my uh, secret powers as actually being time incorporated to send Ken uh, back in time? Um, and 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 I'm so much about our HR policies makes sense now. Right. <laughs> and the point is, I have to settle a personal grudge. Uh, now, I would like to think that I have very few uh, grudges. And uh, I think I'm probably safe in thinking that my first-year college roommate does not listen to this podcast. (laughs) Um, My first-year college roommate, we didn't really get along. Uh, We won't go into the details. Uh, But one of the things about him is that uh, after he had irked me, he made the mistake of revealing his deepest phobia. His deepest phobia was a fear of maps. And so one of the things that I once threatened him with uh, was to take my map from the uh, boxed edition of Call of Cthulhu, I think third edition, the one that has the map that goes on the wall. And so it's not only just a map that would frighten him, because particularly the oceans in the map frightened uh, my roommate. 
but also this version of the map has all sorts of tentacles uh, on them. And drawn so, by the great Yurek Chodak. Drawn by the great Yurek Chodak. And uh, therefore, I just showed him that map and I said, you know, anonymous college roommate, one day I just might tape this map to the window behind the curtain and you'll get up in the morning and you'll pull open while you're still drowsy from sleep after having irked me the night before, you'll pull back the curtain and there you will see this map. And he goes, no, no, and he's shrugging back. And so the involvement of Ken in this is that uh, it turns out that in the original timeline, I'd lost that map. So I just had him bring his map and put it in the box for yeah. me. <laughs> which, which explains where my copy of that map went. I'd like it back. <laughs> The skies are dim always since the maker died. Time to weave a tale, my friends. A tale of good-hearted puppets in a bad-hearted world. In John Scott Tyne's Puppet Land, you rise up against the savagery of Punch, the maker killer. You battle his army of nutcrackers and his terrible boys sewn from the flesh of the maker of all puppets. Seek the gorgeous new hardback edition at your nearest retailer of beautiful yet sinister role-playing games. Featuring full-color paintings from Samuel Araya. And tons of ready-to-play tales from... Kenneth Height. Aaron Dembo. And Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Are you ready to play? Because Punch and his boys are ready to play. Ready for you. Uh, next question. Uh, for somebody who's just uh, a second hand familiarity with the, the film missos through exposure to podcasts and role playing games, what would you recommend as kind of the first steps into getting an overview of the mythos and to be able to enjoy that formation? Okay, so the question is, Ken, did you write a book called Cthulhu 101? <laughs> the answer may surprise you. Um, yes, I would recommend reading Cthulhu 101, available on uh, Amazon in uh, Kindle form, uh, wherever you buy fine Amazon Kindle books. Uh, also electronically from AtomicOvermind.com in PDF. But... There is no better original source than the original source. I would say read Lovecraft. Read The Call of Cthulhu, which obviously provides the architecture for the mythos. Um, real rapidly, I would say, uh, if you're looking for the broadest scope, or the sort of the fastest, uh, Whisper in Darkness is probably the next one, and that it drops a metric ton more of the names than the other stories do. Maybe Haunter in the Dark, and uh, At the Mountains of Madness. You get those four, that will be a pretty good you know, set of sounding buoys. Everyone will give you their, you know, which stories should you read uh, in what order type que type answer. Um, but that, for specifically the question of what do I look at for the mythos, that might be the best way to do it. There are also, of course, endless numbers of anthologies uh, called Tales of the Lovecraft Mythos or words of that effect. Um, the Chaosium One Tales of the Cthulhu Mythos that came out uh, right around the turn of the century is probably the best linear overview and that it has Clark Ashton Smith stories, it has Frank Map Long stories, it has Robert Block stories, it goes all the way down to, to Colin Wilson and, the, and to, even to the very moderns, Car uh, Carl Edward Wagner, 
uh, uh, I think China Mieville may be in there, or me may be in a different one. But there's but there's a good broad spectrum of, of mythos stories. Um, in terms, I would also recommend uh, the Cthulhu Mythos Encyclopedia by Daniel Harms, uh, who is who is a gentleman and a scholar and a great uh, scholar of the of the Lovecraftiana broadly configured, and that will let you have a better source than Wikipedia if you suddenly run across a name and you're like, what is Gaharn? Do I care what Gaharn is? And you can look it up, and if Gaharn sounds like it's your brand of vodka, he will say where the story, where the, that concept came from, and what other stories it appears in. And since he is writing an um, uh, encyclopedia instead of a endless uh, index or concordance, he will pretty much only find give you easy to find stories or easier to find stories. Gaharn, by the way, comes from Brian Lumley, so you can skip it. Um, <laughs> uh, next question. Noel, you're a traitor. <laughs> All right. Noel, you're a hero. Noel, you're a hero. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, Gen Con 100. The uh, speak, question is: the, the question is, uh, what will Gen Con 100 look like? Yes. Uh, good catch, Ken. They didn't do the job. Yes. Uh, well. So, uh, well, uh, I think the main thing is that uh, after the uh, Victorian cyborgs have been melted out of the cyber out of the permafrost long enough, is that fortunately they tested out on game designers. Uh, <laughs> so uh, we're doing episode. Uh, what would it be? Um, 2500? Episode 2500, uh, and we're still often failing to uh, restate the question. (laughs) Um, uh, In in 50 years, I mean, if you imagine, we could not have predicted, in fact, no one could have predicted Gen Con 50, even from Gen Con 40. Even 10 years ago, no one said, oh, Gen Con will sell out and bury the city of Indianapolis. Gen Con will be dominated uh, by uh, fantasy fl- by Asmodee will be the big sell- no one would have said oh yeah I think a French board game company is going to take over that's that's where my head's at so it's probably impossible to say with any specificity what's going to happen I personally believe the tabletop hobby is going to last as long as tables tops do because it is too good a tool for uh, socializing nerds. And uh, as nerds become ever more important to the global economy, I think that socializing them will become ever more important to the uh, uh, organs of culture, if you will. Also, it's great fun. It's a, it's a, it's a already it's, it's a thriving, viable, interesting art form. It will only get more so over the next fifty years. So, our part of Gen Con, I think, will stay strong and weird. Right. Um, uh, the Gen Con Museum will be an actual museum. Yes. Um, but I think that um, uh, you know, it's it's like. Uh, 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 Daniel Burnham said, uh, "Make no little plans. Our uh, our our and our descendants will do things that will amaze and terrify you." And I think that in that case, he's right. Uh, Gen Con is going to be bigger and stranger than we can imagine. I mean, you you you've read just as much Werner Vinge and um, uh, in science fiction as I have, so you can imagine in your own heart your little teleoperated Gen Con, you know, from Callisto on, right. you know, or wherever. But uh, but I think that in 50 years, it's still going to be a big bunch of nerds that gather. Right. And it's, a lot of the cosplayers will have been surgically altered to yes, uh, or, permanently appear like anime characters. Or so. they'll have nanomorphs in them that just sort of change it over yeah. you know, the, the weekend, and then they can go back to not being Twi'leks. Right. Uh, the one thing that won't change, however, is that uh, Indiana hotel bars will still close at 11. Yes. <laughs> 
Uh, next question. How's the food been for you guys this week? We're, we're going to discuss this in uh, probably greater detail uh, on our Gen Con wrap episode. I'll restate the question. Uh, how's the food been so far? Uh, I think we're going to restate this in more detail on the Gen Con wrap up episode. <laughs> but I can tell you that uh, anticipating that very question, uh, it was not because I was bad at planning how long the line would be at the Brazilian food truck, but because I meant to do this, that I got a Brazilian uh, poutine, or I think, it's... Uh, 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 grilled steak, chimichurri sauce on fries, covered in melted provolone cheese, and so the chimichurri and the cheese together average to gravy, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, uh, it's uh, it's it's pretty delightful. Uh, so that I will say, uh, as far as the here food hut, not just because I can smell it, it's talking to me, Dave. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, uh, is uh, is pretty good. So if you get a chance to go to the Brazilian food truck and have two hours to spare, <laughs> I urge you to do so. So to, to preview next week, our find uh, this time uh, is we use the uh, we actually came in early uh, to do a, a Pelgrain summit on the Tuesday. So we were out and uh, we went to a cheaper hotel to do that. So we were out in the outskirts near the airport. And so we fired up the, the magic of Google Maps, which now has way better restaurant recommendations than Yelp. So here, here's the broader, more operational thing that everybody can use no matter where you are, which is uh, Google Maps restaurants have uh, just very quietly become a much better source for finding somewhere to eat. And so we found a uh, Mexican place uh, in the middle of literal nowhere, yeah. uh, or as we discovered, was in the middle of nowhere. And when we got there, we discovered even more so that it was a Mexican, actually Peruvian place. Uh, and yeah. we had some uh, amazing was, it, Peruvian yes, food. It's there. called El Corcel, and it bills itself as a Mexican restaurant. And we, I'm walking and thinking, oh, Mexican food in Indiana, that's going to be great. <laughs> but, you know, it's very hard to mess up a burrito. Not impossible, as anyone who's had Mexican food on the north side of Chicago can tell you, but harder. Right, And then we walk in, and the menu says, Peruvian specialities. And Robin and I say, well... Right, because that's not a move you make if you're not Peruvian. You're right, yeah. <laughs> that's a pretty bold statement to make if you're uh, a Hoosier Mexican uh, short-order cook. So it turns out the Peruvian food at the Mexican place, in the crossroads where Indiana uh, basketball coaches sell their soul to the devil, is uh, actually pretty darn good. Uh, I think we have time for uh, one or two more questions. In the corner, back there. Uh, Talleyrand. So, so the question is, Talleyrand, uh, ally, alias, or adversary? And the answer is, that's up to Talleyrand. It is not up to you. <laughs> uh, Talleyrand, for those who do not know, was famously uh, a influential figure in every French government from... Uh, Louis the Sixteenth, uh, alias Louis the Executed, all the way through uh, all uh, governments of the French Revolution, the National Convention, the uh, 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 the Directory, the Gironde, the Terror, and then down to uh, the revolutions that put the Bourbons, uh, the, not the revolutions, the invasions by the Russians that put the Bourbons back onto the throne in 1814. And it is a famous anecdote that during the next. Uh, French revolutions in um, uh, 1848, Lafayette, elderly Lafayette, gets onto his horse and charges out to lead the, the, the people of Paris in one final charge for liberty, and Talleyrand orders his doorman to take his nameplate off his house. <laughs> <laughs> 
So uh, Talleyrand, um, uh, who was uh, described memorably by Napoleon as a sack of excrement in a silk stocking, um, is a survivor first and foremost. And if you, the player characters, have a thing that will let Talleyrand survive, you will have no more dedicated ally. If you, the player characters, have the goods on Talleyrand, you will have no more implacable adversary. And if you think you have nailed him to the wall when you pull off the mask, that was just old man Jenkins dressing up as Talleyrand to save his investment in the haunted amusement park. And it was an alias all along. Uh, Talleyrand is... Uh, you know, evolutionarily uh, created to outsmart everyone else. And he died wealthy and in bed, which is more than most politicians managed in that era or in uh, most eras up until this fallen one. Uh, so thank you, everybody, for coming. Thank you for your great questions. And stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Calgrain Press. Asphagel. Dark Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by James Semple. Audio editing, and he'll thank you for that one, Rob Borges. <laughs> Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Heights. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again we will talk about stuff.